Welcome to Sentient Planet. Do you hear the call? Hi, I'm your host, Susan Woodward. We're honoured to bring you today's podcast about the global campaign to free Tokatai, a captive orca in Florida, and return her to her home waters in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. This is part of a series of stories and guest interviews about the southern resident orca, or killer whales, that we've produced for Season 1 of Sentient Planet. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at sentientplanetpodcast.com. And a quick caution, this episode contains some sensitive descriptions of animal cruelty. Every August in a cove on Whidbey Island in the Pacific Northwest, people gather for a ceremony. Flowers and cedar sprigs are placed in the sea, and the people remember. They come here every year to commemorate a day in 1970, a day of horror for the beloved southern resident orca, and a day of lasting shame for humans. It was the most horrendous event that people can still hear the orcas cry. In 1970, it used to be commercial industry folks could get a permit from the state of Washington for under a couple of hundred dollars to go capture quithomaton orcas and sell them to aquariums like Miami Sea Aquarium. 1970 was kind of the peak of the gold rush for captive orcas. The demand worldwide was just, you know, growing at that point still. And so they had sort of perfected their methods and increased their investment in aircraft and speedboats and crew to be ready. And at that time, it was just the most cruel roundup that you could even think of and hearing the moms and the males screaming because they lit off underwater explosives to separate the babies from the adults. They didn't want the adults, they only wanted the babies. All the Southern residents, JK and Elpot, had apparently gathered together, but they were chased using these cherry bombs or seal bombs in the water that put out this horrendous and incredibly painful boom in the water that they have to run from. So they had to 
go where the boats wanted them to go, which was around the south end of Whidbey Island and up uh, into Possession Sound and Saratoga Passage. The whales had been captured before. They knew what was happening. They knew their young ones were going to be taken away. And so they used decoys. Most of the whales without young went off to the east, and that was into Port Susan, which was kind of a cul-de-sac. But the moms with babies went under and went as far as they could to an escape route that would have gotten them back out into the open ocean. But part of their capture plans were aircraft. So they were able to watch those waters. And when those moms and babies came up, they alerted the boats, the boats rushed over there. Then they herded them right into Pen Cove. And that's, you know, a perfect enclosed place. They killed several orcas during this roundup. They slit their bellies and filled them with gravel to sink them and weighted them down because they didn't want to count the dead ones as part of their permit take. And so they took these babies and Skelly chucked in it was four when this happened. So she arrived in Miami when she was four, over 50 years ago. Those were the voices of Raynell Morris, an elder of the Lactamish, the Lummi people of Washington State, and Howard Garrett, co-founder of Orca Network. In total, seven young Southern resident Orca were violently separated from their families during the infamous Pen Cove capture and transported to marine theme parks around the world. Scully Choctanot, also known as Tokatai, and her animal performer name, Lolita, was sold to the Miami Seaquarium in Florida. There she remains to this day in a tiny chlorinated tank, a cold-water marine mammal from a temperate clime sequestered under the hot tropical sun. Throughout the 1960s and 70s, a total 40 orca were taken from Washington state waters. Another 13 orca died during these barbaric captures. Most of the animals were sold to SeaWorld and died within a few years of captivity. Tokatai is the sole survivor from the Washington captures and the oldest captive orca in the world today. Now, a decades-long campaign to free her and return her to her home waters in the Pacific Northwest is heating up again. And this time, the Lummi, coastal Salish people who can prove a familial relationship with the southern residents that dates back thousands of years, will not be taking no for an answer. What we know traditionally and culturally is they are us and we are them. Scalicha is the Elpod Lummi name for the area where the Roundup happened in the San Juan Islands. Quithalmachan is the name for all killer whales, and to us it means our relations that live under the waves. So what I was told by our late Chief Salik is there was a young boy that was on our land in Lummi, and then he went under the sea, put on his, his Quithalmachan regalia to join her relatives under the water. 
So that's the close relationship that we've had forever. They're part of our family since the beginning of time. We are not going to stop. We believe she will be here with us. We believe in family reunification. The southern resident orca consists of just 75 individuals, including Tokatai. They are called the southern residents because they frequent the protected waters in the Salish Sea, south of British Columbia. Due to a lack of salmon, breeding challenges, climate change and other threats, these orca have been declining for years and were listed as endangered under the US Endangered Species Act in 2005. Three family groups make up the southern residents, J, K, and L pods. Most likely, Tokatai is a member of L pod. Howard Garrett. We have a recording of her underwater vocalizations, and they do match L pod calls that she learned before capture. And L pod is the largest of the three pods, but it's also the most precarious because they have just suffered the most losses over the years, then they're the least cohesive and they're the least seen in the inland waters. They do come in when there's plenty of fish for everybody, but when we see any of the southern residents, it's usually J-pod or at least some of K-pod, but we don't see L-pod much at all because they're out along the coast. That's their primary foraging habitat is, uh, you know, off the coast of Washington, mainly, and southern British Columbia. Like other orca around the world, members of L-Pod emit a complex system of calls, clicks and whistles that are unique to their family bloodline. Raynell and others who have visited Tokatai in Miami say the captive orca still makes these vocalizations herself. She still sings her Elpod Scalicha family song. Her mother, Ocean Sun from the Elpod, we believe, is still alive and waiting for her daughter. Obviously, they would remember each other. Yes, there, there is no doubt. That would be like uh, me losing, uh, for one reason or another, my son, uh, you know, that he's taken away from me. And I'm 90, and he comes back, and he's 54. There is no doubt that if he's taken when he's four, that we would remember each other's heartbeat, each other's face, each other's spirit. That's the same 
for Scully Chetana and her mother. Now, Raynell and fellow Lummi elder Ellie Kinley are leading fresh legal action to bring Tokatai home, with the support and blessing of Native American tribes and First Nations from across the globe. It was over a year ago we sent MSQ a letter of intent to sue and explained to them she's our relative, it's time. She needs to come home. She deserves to come home. And their response back to us was, we can appreciate you love her, but we know what's best for her and we take the best care for her. So after waiting and sending letters, asking, let's come to the table. It's time, do the right thing. You know, make your wrong right. There was no positive response, so we partnered with the Earth Law Center. MSQ is the Miami Seaquarium. Other entities that appear to have an interest in the marine park and could face legal challenge include Palace Entertainment, a subsidiary of Parques Reunidos, a Spanish company that owns and operates more than 60 theme parks, zoos and the like across the globe, and EQT, a private equity firm based in Sweden. This is not the first time the long campaign to release Tokatai has taken legal action on her behalf. What is new, however, is the Lummi leadership and Raynell and Ellie's claim under the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. This federal law has been used successfully to return to Native Americans and Hawaiians the remains of 50,000 ancestors, but never a living animal. Grant Wilson, executive director of the Earth Law Center, explains. Basically, there are all these items and objects uh, and remains of funerary remains, remains of people that were in museums, at universities, uh, and in other institutions uh, that were taken without permission from Native Americans and others. And this law mandates their return. Um, But when you read the letter of the law, it really doesn't mean that it has to apply to only non-living things. To uh, the Lummi people, an object of cultural patrimony or a sacred object could be a living species because it's something that has special significance to them and their culture. It's something that's been involved in their religious belief systems. And so when you look at the letter of this law, you know, something that was maybe made to return um, non-living items can actually quite clearly mandate the return of something that's alive, in this case, a a Southern resident orca that is sacred to the Lummi people. We think there's a really strong claim under this law and we're in the process of fully hashing out those claims. Should this test of the federal repatriation law succeed, it could set a precedent for other wild captive animals. Related, it would likely bolster the indigenous rights and rights of nature movements. Indigenous rights and how that ties into seeking the release of a captive orca uh, is both a a new legal argument that's really strong, uh, as well as something that has captured the public imagination and brought up issues of, you know, how do 
uh, indigenous rights really mean changing our practices? Um, does that mean we have to reconsider captivity of cetaceans and um, how we treat living species? Uh, we're an organization that seeks a new generation of laws that are more protective of nature and that give a voice to the natural world, as well as defending uh, indigenous rights and human environmental rights along the way. I think this is an exciting opportunity to really look at our Western laws and say, are we treating animals in a way that is in line with our values? And I would say currently we're not. We treat animals like property, just like we treat a, a mug or a pen as our property. But you know, indigenous peoples have never believed that species like orgas are property. That's, that's their family member to the Lummi people. And uh, many indigenous peoples have a unique relationship to the natural world. And I see this as an opportunity as a lawyer to kind of push the button a little bit on how we should interpret our laws and how we can do so in a way that are more in alignment with Indigenous worldviews. In previous legal actions, the courts have ruled against Tokatai's release under the Endangered Species and Animal Welfare Acts. But those fighting on her behalf, a virtual army of tens of thousands of people worldwide, fiercely disagree with keeping her captive. Howard Garrett again. She really needs to come to her familiar home waters. I think she'll recognize them. She'll feel that she's back, finally, when she comes here to the Northwest. I think she'll rebound, you know, almost completely. But there's only one, and that is L25, her presumed mother, who was alive at the time that she was captured in 1970. All the rest have been born since then. But she'll have the vocalizations. She'll know how to communicate and no other way it would and they'll respond to that and you know she needs to have that chance. To greatly improve Tokatai's chances, Raynell and Ellie are also partnering with the Whale Sanctuary Project, which was founded by some of the most experienced marine mammal scientists and advocates in the world. In 2019, the organization worked with the Russian government and Russian animal protection groups to return to the ocean 10 orca and 87 beluga whales who had been captured illegally for sale to entertainment parks in China. The group is also creating a model seaside sanctuary for cetaceans in Nova Scotia. Charles Vink, the Whale Sanctuary Project's executive director, was on the team that oversaw the 2002 release of Keiko, the star of the blockbuster Free Willy movies of the 90s. He has helped develop a complex operational plan for Tokatai's release. While we have observed her to be very healthy, we don't actually know all of her health records. We don't know her actual physical condition from the perspective of veterinary care. So the first piece, not only with her, but with any cetacean that would be moved, is to understand what her condition is physically, from a health standpoint, are there any pathogens that she's carrying? So a complete medical and veterinary workup would be done by third party veterinarians, if you will, not only the Miami Sea Aquarium experts, but also some that we would hope to bring in who could evaluate her condition. Based on that, then there's the plan to acclimate her for transport. 
because it's a very stressful experience for any of us who go on a transport, but for certainly for a cetacean. Assuming she is healthy, the team would spend the next few months preparing Tokatai for transport back to the Salish Sea. You want to take these steps gradually so that the physical and mental stress on her is as minimal as possible during what would be a 12, 13, 14 hour transport by truck, by crane into a box, into an airplane, then the reverse as you come out. So all of those elements and all of those steps are outlined in extremely detailed fashion within the operational plan. Initially in this plan, she would be going to a site, hopefully a Lummi site, where there would be pre-staged and pre-built what's called a bay pen. We call them an ocean habitat because it's really ocean water. Think of something the size of a football field. A lot of people following her story would love to see Tokatai reunited with her family. That possibility, Charles says, needs to be weighed carefully. Now, is she truly a candidate for release back to LPOD? That, I think, has to be looked at as a second stage. That would require more training, physical training for her. Oh, what we did with Keiko was open ocean walks, two, three, four knots at a time, 40 miles, 50 miles, to build stamina the way you or I would train for a marathon. Same kind of thing would have to happen for her. Well, you know, that's the goal. That's certainly the hope. But we wouldn't want to put her in jeopardy, nor would we want to put LPOD in jeopardy if, as we've seen they do in the wild, care for someone who is injured or ill or a baby that's suffering by changing the way they move. We would monitor her physical, spiritual, and her mental and cultural well-being forever as our sacred obligation to a relative. It's true to say that no one knows for sure exactly how Tokatai will fare during and after her release. It's also true to say that her new situation, whether the open ocean or a sea pen, can only be a vast improvement on her current one. Orca, found in every ocean on Earth, have evolved over the past 11 million years. Their brains are larger and more convoluted than ours. Most individuals live their entire lives with the same pod they were born into, forming incredibly strong relationships with their kin. Family members swim together up to 100 miles a day. Orca often dive 300 feet to catch prey, but some have been detected much deeper. At the Miami Sea Aquarium, however, Tokatai is the sole orca. The width of her concrete tank is less than twice the length of her body. It is too shallow for diving of any kind. She belongs to a majestic ocean species, one of the top predators in the world, but is forced to do tricks for food. Raynell visited Tokatai at the theme park again late last year. Well, there are several things that are just cruel in the way she is being kept is 
to me, it would be like what they've done to our native children by rounding them up and bringing them to boarding schools, not allowing them to have their hair, cutting it off, not allowing them to wear their traditional clothing, not allowing them to speak their language, punishing them, getting the savage out of them so they become Christians. That's what they've done to her. Orcas see and feel through acoustics. She's in a cement tank. There is no acoustic feedback. You don't get that in a cement tank. So that's like her being blind. And no other family for her to communicate with, even if she could. She's in solitude. I related also to COVID-19 and our shelter in place. We've been doing it for over 12 months and we can't stand it. You know, we, we want to socialize, we want to hug. One is, you know, see our neighbors, see our family, see our friends. Think about over 50 years. No interaction with your family. No way to sing together, no way to swim together. And the other thing that's just cruel is she is from the Salish Sea. She is in a tank with no coverage. She is in the Miami sun year around. It goes on and on. It's unacceptable. No more. I apologized. I asked for her forgiveness that we haven't brought her home yet. We brought Cedar all the way from the Pacific Northwest. So our people tell a story of our salmon returning to their streams by the smell of their cedar. So we've brought Cedar so that she knows. I asked Charles Vinnick why this time around the effort to free Lolita would succeed. We have a team of people who have experience over decades of doing different kinds of work in the field with cetaceans. And so bringing that level of experience to what is a spiritual and cultural effort by the Lummi puts together a team that not only has a legal potential that hasn't existed before, but a legal potential to bring the whale that's been known as Lolita, been known as Tokatai, and is now known as Skelly Shaktanaw, to back to the Salish Sea. But it also demonstrates that not only do they have that legal underpinning and cultural and traditional connection to her, but that they have the capacity to execute on a plan to actually do it. And that's what the partnership really does. It brings all of that been missing for decades is the spiritual connection, but also the scientific and operational capacity to do it. Our knowledge and understanding have certainly matured over the decades since Tokatai was captured. The 2013 documentary Blackfish 
raised awareness for millions of people. Now we know the Southern residents are a complex matriarchal society, each pod their own tribe, practicing a unique culture and dialect. These facts can only help Raynell and Ellie's case, but it's the Lummi position that Tokatai is kin and a literal member of their nation that gives them real moral and perhaps legal authority. We have the scientific knowledge behind us but more importantly, we have the cultural kinship that is real. She is our family. No one else has been able to put forth, you know, that position. They love her and they care for her, but she's not their family. She's our family. Rena Priest, a poet and writer who is also a Lummi member, recently published an essay about Tokatai and the Southern Residents. In it, she wrote, If vulnerable people are taken from their families against their will, and they die, the charges against the perpetrators are kidnapping and murder. If killer whales are my relations under the waves, and if Tokatai dies alone, 5,500 kilometres from home, and if her body is quietly disposed of after a lifetime of exploitation for profit, a kidnapping, enslavement, and murder, the crimes that have been committed. Washington finally banned its orca captures in 1976, the first U.S. state to do so. By then, however, a global demand had been created and much damage done. Today, at least 57 orca remain in captivity globally, 29 of which were taken from the wild, the others born to their fate. In addition, there are more than 300 beluga whales and 2,500 dolphins living in marine parks. Simultaneously, a paradigm shift is occurring in multiple nation-states. Charles Vinnick. The pressure is certainly very strong, and people are voting with their feet by not attending. They're voting with their investment dollars so that the, these organizations that hold whales that are owned publicly are seeing pressures on their investment dollars on their stock prices globally. Canada in 2019 passed a law to forbid any longer keeping whales in captivity or the breeding of whales in the one park that's grandfathered in. Similarly, France is looking at a law like that right now. And the orca that are kept in Antibes, marine land Antibes, the government has said they have to be out of there within a few years. Brussels has passed such a law. There is pressure in Australia similarly. And young people today no longer accept it. And that's our hope for the future. Through indigenous eyes, our collective future is one in which the human species has made restitution 
for the wrongs we've perpetuated against our animal relations and their lasting effects. Raynell says the Lummi's vision begins with Tokatai's freedom and also includes a larger healing, a time to come soon when dams and mindsets from the past have been broken, when the Chinook salmon that the southern residents depend on can once again spawn and run in healthy rivers. A time when the entire Salish Sea ecosystem, home to the orca and thousands of other species, including us, is whole again. For you and for people that are listening to my words, pray for her. We are told from our ancestors that we will be successful. We did ceremony out in the islands. We did a burning, that's how we connect and talk with our ancestors. And we're told it's our sacred obligation to heal the Salish Sea, which will heal the salmon, will heal Quithalmachan, and heal us Lactamishlami people. And so you take that sacred obligation because it's given to you from the ancestors and they don't give it to you to not succeed. You carry it. We bring her home. You know you're not alone. Your people love you. Your mother wants you home. We're sorry, but no, we're coming. It won't be long. Footnote. On the day we wrapped production of this podcast, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit ruled that a previously dismissed lawsuit brought by Peter and the Orca Network that claims Tokatai's confinement and living conditions violate the Federal Animal Welfare Act can proceed in district court. In addition, you may have heard the news that a new baby orca has been born to Tokatai's ocean-faring family, Elpod. It seems that momentum is again in Skelly Choctanot's favour. To support the campaign to free Tokatai, visit earthlawcenter.org. You can also go to sacredsea.org and be sure to sign the petition. Our gratitude to the Blackhawks for permission to use their traditional song in today's podcast, Lummi Nation Anthem, Survivors of the Great Flood. The Blackhawks were led by singers Lawrence and Denise Solomon. Lawrence is chairman of the Lummi Nation. Intro music, The Spaces Between by Scott Buckley. Thanks also to Ocean Networks Canada for the great acoustic clips of Elpod talking. Sentient Planet is brought to you by co-creators Susan Woodward and Tiffany Owens. Social media by Bridget MacArthur. Art direction by Janet Grimwade. 
Original cover art by Vonda Whitley. Photographed by Mark Stoop. Sentient Planet is produced in the Krusty Palace studio from an undisclosed location on the traditional homeland of the Nisqually tribe in the great Pacific Northwest. Be sure to visit us at sentientplanetpodcast.com and join our pod. Also on the usual social media suspects at Sentient Planet Podcast. Thanks for listening and love to all beings, great and small.